Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some servants and said, Tell those that have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Well, please do keep that, um, that passage open from uh, Matthew's Gospel in front of you. And uh, do let me add my welcome to that of uh, Pete's this morning. My name is uh, Ben Cooper. I'm uh, Minister for Training here at Christ Church Forward on the staff team. And uh, it's great to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, as we begin, let's pray. We've got uh, God's word open in front of us. Uh, let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, uh, these are sober words from the Lord Jesus, and uh, we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, hearts that are ready to receive. We pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would move us to respond rightly, and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I guess for many of us, this is a season for getting lots and lots of invitations, there's a sort of whirlwind, isn't there, that we're in the midst of, of carol services and school concerts and mulled wine with the, the neighbours and office Christmas lunches or parties and then more mulled wine. Uh, it's not for all of us, I guess. I guess some would perhaps one or two more invitations, uh, those lonely amongst us, perhaps more company. Uh, so I don't know how you respond to these invitations. It could be uh, all sorts of different ways. I don't know whether you're a, oh, hey, hey, another invitation kind of person, or whether you're a, oh, good grief, another invitation kind of person. Uh, we, have a, we have a spectrum in our household. Um, but for some, uh, the invitations just, just keep coming, don't they? They're over and over, over again, and every evening seems taken. Still, it's not the end of the world, really, is it? Nothing really hangs that much on these invitations. We could miss one or two and not feel much in the way of long-term consequence. We could live with the shame, I guess. It's not a matter of life and death, is it? 
Now, this is also the season of Advent. And the season of Advent, as we remind people every year, is all about looking ahead, not to Jesus' first coming, which we, is what we're celebrating at Christmas, but his second coming. Now, it's remarkable. This surprises people every year. And I guess that's because if you're, if you're my age, at least, you've built up your theology of Advent from Blue Peter, uh, from doing the Advent candles on Blue Peter, or maybe every year, you know, opening your Advent calendar, counting down the days, and your focus is on Christmas. So when I say every year, did you, did you know that Advent is actually about Jesus' second coming? He's coming in glory and, and judgment and justice and in the kingdom. People say, really? Are you sure? I never heard of that before. But it is the season of Advent, and we, it's helpful for us to remember that. And we're at the end of a very short series on Advent, looking at three parables from Matthew's Gospel, each of which encourages us to think about that more distant future, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've been along to the others, you'll remember that the, the setting here is in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, it's in the events leading up to Jesus' execution on a Roman cross, And uh, Jesus is engaged in this battle with the religious establishment of his day. It's a battle all about authority. Who has the authority? Is it them or is it him? And in these parables, Jesus is exposing what these religious leaders are really like. And actually, he's simultaneously warning them that uh, the way things are going, they're in danger of facing God's judgment So they say they're people who follow God, but then in practice they don't. They think of themselves as leaders of God's people, uh, bearing fruit for him. But actually they're keeping everything for themselves. And they've been abusing everyone God has been sending them, including most seriously, his son. It's been quite hard listening into this uh, over these weeks, but it's uh, very important that we do. You see, we want to avoid the kind of errors that they slipped into. We don't want to be like them. And uh, we should also want to see how we, as people now in the 21st century, fit into the stories that Jesus has been telling and to the real history that he's been referring to. And uh, we're going to find help with both those things, you know, avoiding the mistakes, seeing how we fit in. in, Also in this final parable in Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding banquet, And uh, you'll notice it is very much a parable about invitations, about invitations. That's the basic purpose of this parable, I guess, isn't it? Jesus wants us to accept a very, very important invitation and to do so properly. But it's also a, a parable about Advent. That is, it's a parable about the end of history as we know it. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this in two parts this morning. The first part, verses uh, 1 to 10 is uh, pretty much, I think, um, building, building upon, reinforcing what we've already heard from Jesus. Uh, and this time, what Jesus is doing, he's likening these religious leaders to people who've received an invitation to, to the most important event in their lives, but bizarrely, they are refusing to come. And uh, we want to avoid that problem. But we also, want to, we also want to see how we fit into all of this. And... Uh, As we come to that, there's going to be a second part to this parable. Final few verses. A quite difficult and quite shocking twist in the final few verses. 
But let's begin by covering the, the part of the parable that should now be kind of fairly familiar ground. Uh, there are, I guess, some invitations that we can turn down, but some we really shouldn't. Jesus says to the people in the temple, and he says it to us this morning as well, whatever you do, don't refuse an invitation from your God. Don't refuse an invitation from your God. Jesus says, verse 2, the kingdom of heavens is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. This is how the story goes. The son is getting married. It's a big event. It's a big event today, I guess, isn't it? When royalty gets married, everything stops. Everyone watches. Much more so in the ancient world because a royal marriage would be politically important as well, wouldn't it? It would be shaping the future. So this is big news. This is a big event. There isn't a bigger event in this kingdom. It's much more than just a social event. And uh, we can see here, verse 3, that prior invitations have already been sent out to all the important people who are expected to be there. And now the king sends out his servants to tell them to come. You know, it's ready. But look at the end of the verse, end of verse 3. They refused to come. Now, if you've been back there in the temple listening to Jesus uh, say this parable for the very first time, engaging with this story, that would absolutely have caught you short. What do you mean they refused? They can't refuse. It's impossible. There must be some mistake. But as Jesus continues, it becomes very clear there's been no mistake. Verse 4, the king sends out more servants who have an even clearer message, this time with a few hints of some of the, the kind of fine food that's going to be on the menu at this wonderful feast, this time making it very clear the trouble and expense the king has gone to, it's going to be lavish, it's going to be generous, it's going to be glorious. And now we're thinking, surely they couldn't refuse this. Surely they wouldn't risk dishonoring the king by refusing again. But refusing again is exactly what they do. Let me read from verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. I guess it's a bit like saying to the king, you know, I like a good feast as much as the next person, but sorry, sorry, I don't like you. But it gets worse, verse six. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them and killed them. It's getting bizarre, isn't it? Why would you mistreat a messenger? Why would you kill them? Why would anyone do that? So if we're following the story so far, we're really not too surprised, verse 7, that the king is enraged. That seems a perfectly reasonable and just reaction, doesn't it? And we're not at all surprised when he sends his servants out to gather a completely different group of people to fill the wedding hall, to fill the feast. Reading this today, though, I suspect we may not quite grasp the seriousness of this. Jesus was speaking into his culture and the shame and dishonor of rejecting an invitation like this one would have been very, very obvious. I guess there are cultures like that around in the world today as well, perhaps less so in ours. We can sort of feel it to a certain extent, but we may struggle to engage with it in quite the same way. So let me try and tell the story using slightly different imagery. 
Imagine you're the employee, an employee in a small but successful family firm. And one day you receive a personal invitation from the owner himself to a very, very important event coming up. The firm is just about to be completely restructured, reformed, rebranded, with a huge injection of fresh capital. And the invitation makes it very clear that you're going to have an honoured role in the new future of this company. And you've been invited to a grand celebration at a top hotel with no expense spared to celebrate this new future for the company. It sounds great, but you ignore it. You receive another invitation. You have a note stuck to it. Perhaps you didn't get this. You ignore this one too. Then the owner sends his PA to check in person that you got the message. But you mistreat them. You pretend they're not there. Perhaps you even insult them. Then you walk out. You go home. And you do something else. I guess if you were to behave like that, I I think we'd we'd look on that and and think, there's something really quite bizarrely wrong here, isn't there? There's something, must be something deeply wrong with your relationship with the owner for you to react that way. Some deep-seated bitterness or antagonism. Perhaps you're scheming some alternative behind the schemes. This is what the Bible word sin means when this kind of bitterness under the surface, the bitterness that lies deep in our hearts, when that is directed at God, that is what sin is. But going back to the story, I just want to point out that the very obvious consequences of treating the owner that way. Let me ask an obvious question. Will you have a part in the future of that firm if you behave that way? And the answer is a very firm no. There's no way that you can be, expect to be a part of that new future. Now remember in all this, Jesus is telling these stories and I've retold the story because it's like what was going on at that moment he was speaking in real history because you see, what was going on in real history at the time is that Jesus has been announcing that God is indeed planning a party. He's more precisely, he's planning what in Matthew's gospel is called the kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is going to be like a complete reordering, not just of a, of a small family firm, but of the, of the whole universe. The whole universe. Heaven and earth reunited under God's loving rule, his generous rule. All hostility to him and wickedness gone, justice and peace established. And for those who come to be a part of this new future, it's going to be like coming to the party of parties. It's going to be like coming to a wedding feast to end all wedding feasts. And God has been sending his servants, the prophets, to announce it in advance. And he sent John the Baptist to say that this moment is near. You need to be ready for it. And finally, in Jesus, he has sent his son to confirm it is indeed coming and to prepare his people for it. And in this hostile confrontation in the temple, Jesus is warning the priests and the Pharisees through these parables, if you reject this invitation, what can you expect? You know, there is no other God to live under. There's no alternative to turn to. There's no other kingdom that you can be a part of in the future 
You have no right or power to set up something on your own. You reject this, you're basically cutting yourself off. Rejecting this is effectively suicide for you. That's how strong the warning is. Now, was Jesus bluffing as he gave that warning? Well, we look back into history and we see, no, he wasn't bluffing. We know from what happens next that the religious establishment did reject the invitation as strongly as they possibly could by executing Jesus on a Roman cross. But even as Jesus died, their temple was rendered empty and useless, the main curtain torn in two from top to bottom. Forty years later, the building was fatally damaged by the Romans. Sixty-five years after that, it was flattened completely and Jerusalem with it. Look at verse 7 here again. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. No, it would seem he was not bluffing. Now let me tell you uh, an interesting fact. Did you know that the uh, lifetime probability of winning the lottery, and this is if you play every week for the rest of your life, is about the same as the lifetime probability of dying in an asteroid impact? I wonder if you knew it's so unlikely that it's so unlikely that you're going to win that if you buy a ticket, you're more likely to die before the draw is taken than win the jackpot. It's extraordinary, isn't it? That basically, with the lottery, there is effectively no chance of winning. No chance of winning. And yet 32 million people play the lottery every week in the United Kingdom. Extraordinary thing. Think about this. How many also think that what Jesus says here about the future might just be true? Might therefore be worth investigating? Well, just from the numbers, it's relatively few, it would seem. What does that mean? People are treating what Jesus says here, people are treating what Jesus has warned about as less likely than winning the lottery. Less likely than death by asteroid. Effectively impossible. Or to put it another way, most of our society, most of the people around us, maybe us too to an extent, think that Jesus was bluffing when he said the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, When he said, come to me, get ready, accept the invitation. In fact, we're so sure none of those things are true that many of us hardly give it a moment's thought. Now, if that seems slightly foolish and uh, inconsistent to you, I'd agree. But the good news is this. The good news for us today is that we're in verse 10 of Jesus' story. Let me read verse 10 to you. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. The servants are out on the streets. They're gathering everyone and anyone they can find. 
And Jesus really does mean anyone, good or bad. In his day, it included tax collectors and other notorious sinners. It went on to include Gentiles, non-Jewish people like us. So it certainly includes everyone here this morning. This is our opportunity. This is our opportunity. We'd be foolish not to take it. The question is, though, have we? Have we? When we get to the party, will we still be pondering? Now, I did, I, I did reply to this invitation, didn't I? Surely I did. Well, if we're open to the possibility and warm to the invitation, but that's all, there's a bit of a sting in the tail how Jesus finishes his parable. Refusing God's invitation is obviously a dangerous thing to do. Don't refuse it. But our second point this morning is also don't abuse it. Don't refuse it. Also, don't abuse it. This is verses 11 through to 14. Don't abuse an invitation from your God. Don't treat it wrongly. Treat it carefully as it deserves. Don't assume you've responded or that everything will be fine when actually you haven't. For an event like the one Jesus is talking about, we need to become properly prepared. Just listen to the end of the story with me from verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. And the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now this is uh, both surprising and shocking, isn't it? And we're following just the, the level of the story. It's also, I guess, kind of outrageous. I mean, I guess dress codes are all very well. Some establishments might refuse you entry if you're wearing jeans or forget a jacket and a tie. But tying someone up and casting them into outer darkness, that's a, that's a pretty stiff dress code, isn't it? It does seem a little extreme. So we do need to move very quickly to the reality that Jesus has in mind as he's, as he's telling this story. What's this final scene? What's this final scene a picture of? Well, this is almost a, certainly a, a picture of the final judgment that'll take place when the kingdom of heaven finally comes, ultimately comes. Verse 10, the servants of the king have been hard at work. They've been gathering all kinds of people from all kinds of places. In Jesus, this corresponds to Jesus' disciples going out into all the nations, making and gathering more disciples, gathering them up. And then verse 11, what, have, what has been promised happens. And they're all gathered for the feast. And the king comes in and he looks around and everyone falls under his penetrating gaze. And most people, it has to be said, look fabulous. They look amazing. We'll think about how they can look so amazing in a moment. But they look amazing apart from one. He has not got himself ready for the feast. He's turned up unprepared, assuming everything will be fine. But it's not fine. It's really not fine. And so he's cast into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Elsewhere, Jesus has used that phrase to talk about the separation on the last day when the enemies of God are sent to a place of eternal anguish and loneliness and regret. So it's very important, isn't it? It's very, very important this morning that we work out what it means to be prepared and rightly dressed on that day. Now, in the story, uh, Jesus doesn't actually you know, explicitly say. We have to sort of kind of work it out from the rest of Matthew's gospel. Now, remember, this is a, this is a wedding feast, and it's a wedding feast for, God, for, for the king's son. And repeatedly in Matthew, we've seen that G- Jesus is the son coming to the world like lights into the darkness. That's what we're remembering at Christmas, of course. That's what we've been thinking about in the carol services, light into the darkness. Why did he come? Why did he come? He came to prepare his people for this last day, for the last day, to call them to come and take rest and refuge in him, to call them to follow him, to save them from their sins. It's the verse we began with this morning. How's he going to do that? How so? By dying for them by taking the curse of death due to their sin upon himself, by being raised so they can share in his victory over death, so that even those of us whose righteous acts, as Isaiah says, amount to little more than filthy rags, even those of us like that can share in his glory. And the rags that we wear, they're stripped away so that, as Jesus says elsewhere, we can shine like the sun on that day. You see, what was happening as Jesus was speaking in in the temple all that time ago, I guess there would have been some people just kind of assuming that they're going to be warmly welcomed by God when it comes to the kingdom. Warmly welcomed into his feast when the kingdom comes. They've listened to the first of uh, Jesus' parables, first two of them. The first part of this one, thinking, no, 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 that doesn't apply to us. We're not making that mistake. Blessed is the one who will eat in the feast of the kingdom. You know, we're definitely, we're definitely on the guest list. They might even have been mildly warm towards Jesus. Oh yeah, we like Jesus. We we like Jesus, nice man, good teacher. We like him, we definitely like him. But Jesus has already warned such people and will warn them again in in this gospel that unless they fully entrust themselves to him, truly, wholeheartedly, desperately, he will say to them on that day the dreadful words, the worst words you could ever possibly hear. I'm sorry. I never knew you. Likewise today. There are many people around, of course, who feel warm towards Jesus. Many people who were open to the idea that what he said about the kingdom and about the future might just be true. And perhaps they even feel that they've got that possibility covered. They've taken out what they think is appropriate insurance for that event. Come to church occasionally. Speak warmly of Christianity, or, or parts of it at least. Nothing too radical, of course. That would be, you know, unseemly. And so we do these things and we assume we're kind of covered. After all, I might say, I, if I do have to face the gaze of God one day, well, I'm, I'm not overtly wicked. In fact, I'm quite well liked, at least by some people. 
I'll blag my way my in, I'm sure. I'll blag my way in. Maybe you're one of those people who've even thought about what you might say to God on that day. We'll take a look at verse 12 again with me and Jesus' warning. This is what the king said. How did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. You see, we can say what we like now, but on that day, we'll have nothing to say. No defense. No excuse. Not a word. So it is, as I was saying at the start, the season for all kinds of invitations. And also the season of Advent, which is a sober reminder that there is one invitation that we really must take seriously. And Jesus has reminded us, don't refuse it. And don't abuse it. Don't take it lightly or half-heartedly. Or even as I said that, I know that there are going to be some people here this morning um, inappropriately worried about that. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about people who have already in, fully entrusted themselves to Jesus and are already following him and, and living, living out their lives as one of his disciples. Let me just say, this, this parable is not directed at you. Take comfort from it. Take comfort from the reminder here of the extraordinary lengths the king in the story has gone as he makes sure the party will happen and the wedding feast is going to be full of plenty of people. The king really does go out of his way to make sure that happens, doesn't he? And we can be a part of that. We can be assured by that. And so take the opportunity this season of Advent to look forward to the feast and to be reassured that you've done the right thing in entrusting yourself to the king's son. And we can join in, can't we? We can join in with verse 10 and get, get, get on with gathering everyone we can possibly find to be a part of this feast. But I also know for sure, pretty sure this morning that there are people here much more directly in the firing line of this parable. And I imagine you would know who you are. And if that feels a little uncomfortable to you this morning, then that is intentional. That is Jesus' intention for you this morning. But Jesus, of course, doesn't just want you to feel uncomfortable about all of this. He wants you to do something about it. Or rather, he wants you to become part of something that he has done, he is doing. It's something he's patiently reminding us about over and over again so, so that we can, in fact, wonderfully be ready for that final day, that we can be properly dressed for it. It's something we can be reminded about this very Christmas and indeed every Christmas because it is the Christmas message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to get us ready for that day. He came at extraordinary personal cost to get us ready for the wedding feast. He's inviting us to come. It's an open invitation. We just have to take it. He wants us to be there. And why wouldn't we want to be there too? Well, let's pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning through this very sobering parable for reminding us of the seriousness and foolishness of refusing such a great and important invitation. There are lots of implications flowing from this, Father, but Lord, especially pray for those amongst us this morning who just need to take the opportunity right now to seize hold of this invitation, to grasp onto the Lord Jesus, to depend upon him utterly, to give up everything they have for him, and therefore to be able to look forward to being there, clothed in his glory, his righteousness, on that fearful and yet wonderful day. Please have mercy, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.